and then in the fine print at the bottom saying when you buy two or if you buy three. The world is full of fine print, is it not? Uh, and it and it might get worse with uh, with a worse experience with the fine print uh, when you're dealing with bigger deals and greater uh, expenditures of money. It has even generated a, a certain saying that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We all have gotten used to looking for the catch, as we say. Surely there, there must be a catch, and there almost always is. So what do we do with the relationship between Abraham and Moses? Okay, that's a rather abrupt transition. Uh, but the point, of course, is to introduce Romans four thirteen to 17. The question is this, is Moses and the law of God, God's fine print to the gracious promises of God to Abraham? As the story of Abraham and God's promises to him is told in God's word, we can search, we pointed this out before, we can search for the word if. We can search for the word maybe, and we will not find those words. We certainly will not hear when you buy two, three, or more. And yet, given the world we live in, we will always be tempted to hear the promises of God and to say, oh, but there has to be a catch. Maybe it's not spelled out in the, in the story of Abraham, but surely God did not intend to just give away his blessings. And if that's our thought process, we are certainly not alone. Within his ministry as an apostle, by the time Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he had surely needed to address this issue many times over. The question is this, how do you reconcile God making unconditional promises to Abraham, yet with God telling Moses and Israel, do this and you shall live, don't do it, and you will die. God promised Abraham, I am giving you the land of Canaan, both to you and to your descendants after you. But to Moses, God said, you must obey me if you expect me to bless you. So is it the fine print, as we say? Is obedience and holiness before God the previously hidden condition upon which God will bless his people? The Apostle Paul says no. And one way to summarize the, the passage before us this morning is that it's Paul's explanation of the relationship, we might say, between Abraham and Moses, between the unconditional, gracious promises of God and the law of God, which came even hundreds of years later at Mount Sinai. So the first point is the primacy of the promise. Verses 13 through 15 read, the, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, 
but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that's a, that's a long quote, uh, a full three verses. And the question is, how does it all fit together? Well, first, let's notice that each of these verses uh, begins with the word for. For the promise to Abraham did not come through the law. For it is the adherence of the law. For the law brings wrath. It shows us and it reminds us that the Apostle Paul is building a case. Uh, he is making an argument. Uh, so here now in, in these verses is his explanation for what he wrote earlier in verse or, or in, in chapter four. Now, or I think it's in even verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Remember, that's the way of the world. You get what you earn. But then Paul says this, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that is in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's been, it's been a couple weeks now, but this from last time, that, that even Abraham, way back in Genesis, even Abraham was saved in the same way as we are, as we must be if we would be saved. And what is the way to be saved? That ought to remind you of what Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this, is, uh, this was as much true for Abraham as it is for us. Can we, can we grasp this? We, we can and we will as we remember that God is as we said before, the changeless God of salvation, and that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, this from last time. But, okay, good, good news. God is the God of salvation. Righteousness is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. But what about Moses? What about God speaking to his people through Moses, promising them the land but once they were in the land, hundreds of years later, after Abraham, what about God telling them, obey, and you can stay. But if you don't do so, out you go. There's a little poem, but it is, I believe, an accurate summary of God's word to Israel. Obey, and you can stay. But if you don't do so, out you go. And let's not oversimplify this. I mean, let's not sterilize it. The promise of God to give his people the land was the promise to kill all the inhabitants of the land. And it was the warning to be obedient in the land uh, eventually brought upon God's people the destructive power of the ruthless Babylonians. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. Because of Israel's disobedience to God, the Babylonians pulled uh, the babies of Israel from the arms of their mothers and 
crush them against the streets of, of Jerusalem. Psalm 137, verse 9. So this is not fairy tale stuff. It was real, it, and, and it was serious business, but, but it was a picture, even a, a picture of something much worse than babe, <coughs> much worse than babies being, being uh, crushed in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, even in the, it's a picture even of the final judgment and salvation of God. In the end, it's a picture of that final day that we all know is coming. And so even as we hear Paul write of Abraham that, that uh, God's promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world, we are hearing the same promise that Jesus gave us in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. On one hand, what God promised to do for his people in giving them the land of Canaan is a picture, a, a foreshadowing. On the other hand, it is a picture so closely related to Christ and the gospel that it, it's, it's more than a picture. But either way, whether it's the ancient promise of, of a land for his people, or whether it's the promise of God that the meek shall inherit the earth, the question remains, how does it come? Is the promise fulfilled by grace, by pure gift, as God's people trust, or does it come as God's people earn and deserve it by their obedience to the law of God? God's word makes clear that, uh, or it makes clear by this instruction from Paul, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul is simply pointing out, and, and it really is uh, quite simple, that the law of God, given through Moses at Mount Sinai, you all know the story, the law of God didn't come until hundreds of years after Abraham. So we can search for the word if as we, as we read God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17. There is no if, whether implicit or, or explicit. Well, okay, I, I guess I'm wrong. Uh, in Genesis 12, God does say, if anyone opposes you, they will be opposing me. And in Genesis 13, God says, if you can see far enough, which you can't, to the north, south, east, and west, well, then you can see the full extent of the land that I will give you. In Genesis 15, God said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. In other words, whenever God said if, whenever God said if within the promises to Abraham, it was the if of Abraham's ability to comprehend the fullness of his promised unmerited blessing. But it was never the if of whether Abraham or his descendants might ever come to deserve what God was promising. 
because it absolutely, categorically, and irrefutably had nothing to do with Abraham deserving the blessing being promised. I am going to bless you, period, full stop. And to make it even more clear, Paul writes this in verse 14. For if it is, okay, so there's an if, but it's hypothetical. Hypothetically speaking, writes Paul, if it were the case, which is not, but if, if it were the case that the adherents of the law are those who uh, will be the heirs, well, faith is null and the promise is void. Here's the, here's the problem with understanding the law of God as the fine print to the promises of God. First, it makes faith null. And applied to us, it, it points out the stark confusion of those who claim the Christian faith while thinking to work for their salvation. That's not faith. That's, that's not the Christian faith. That's what? Maybe some, some other works religion. This is Paul's point, that faith is apart from works. He, he teaches earlier in this chapter that to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And while we are told explicitly that, uh, uh, that Abraham too, before us, was declared righteous by faith, so here's the further proof that the law of God was not even issued by God until hundreds of years later. So that if those blessed by God are those who obey the law, well then the story of Abraham and the, the man of Abraham himself is, is, is utterly pointless. Second, not only is, is faith made null and void, so that Abraham is canceled to use the language of our culture, but the promise is void. Now we have an empty promise. Now we have God talking nonsense in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. We have, we have a God who talks nonsense. We have a God who wastes his words. We even have a God who cannot be trusted. We have a God who says things that mean nothing. We have a God, finally, who is not God. For if it is the, the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Where do we hear that word before? Void. Genesis 1, verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God is the God who fills the void by what he does. His promises are not void. He fills the void with light, with substance, with order, and with righteousness. In other words, the same God who was at work in the beginning when the earth was without form and void, that same God is the God who is at work in salvation, filling the void and establishing the church by his word. But what about the law? What about Moses? 
Where does he come in? Where does the law fit? The interesting thing is that Moses, uh, or, or that Israel had, had come to focus more on Moses than on Abraham. They, they didn't forget Abraham. They even claimed that they were the offspring of Abraham, which many of them were by blood. In other words, and, and this is ironic, that they recognized that they were one part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, while at the same time they were more focused on Moses and on the law of God. So the Apostle Paul, writing to a largely Jewish congregation in Rome, was eager to teach them, don't forget Abraham. Don't miss the point that the law of God, given through Moses at Mount Sinai, came centuries after God made his unconditional promises to Abraham. But what about Moses and the law? The first thing to see, teaches Paul, is that the law brings wrath. Verse 15, in other words, the law of God, his commands to do, only brings wrath. Because even from the Garden of Eden, one violation of God's commands brings wrath and judgment. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. I'm here to warn you, said God. Have you ever been out uh, walking in the woods and uh, you found a, a tree or a bush filled with berries and you were tempted, right? Those berries look good, but you know better, don't you? God said, trust me, these berries are not good. In fact, they will kill you. But our first parents ignored the warning of God. They ate the berries and they died. They died spiritually and even physically too. And it's been the same ever since. The law of God, his commands given to a, a faithless, rebellious people only brings wrath and judgment for disobedience. Think about it this way, that, that one way to make a child disobey is uh, to tell him or her what not to do. Don't do this. Do that instead. But what happens, being told what not to do, the child does it. Because it's cool to disobey. It tastes delicious to eat of forbidden fruit. That's just the nature of sin within us. And being told to do, ah, here's my opportunity to defy the authority over me and to rebel and to assert my independence. That's just human nature, fallen in sin. The question is, why can we see it in our children, but we can't see it in ourselves? Why do we think the law of God is our salvation, or at least part of our salvation, that even as I manage to obey, or even on occasion, and even just one of the Ten Commandments, I manage to see myself as being obedient, and somehow we count that towards our salvation. No, Paul makes plain what is already plain, or at least should be plain, that, that the law brings wrath. Even more that when there is no law, there is no transgression. 
to why did God make his unconditional promises to Abraham? Promises not based on anything that Abraham did, but then several hundred years later, add the law. Because where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there, there is no knowledge or no recognition, no confession of sin. The doctrine of sin is, uh, is not likely to be a popular subject uh, for study, even among Christians, but it should be. Uh, think of the fact that there is not just one word for sin, but the word, uh, the word sin is, is matched with the word iniquity, with the word wickedness, with the word evil, with the word rebellion. And also with this word transgression. And it's the word that Paul chooses to use uh, in this passage. Uh, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. The word transgression means to go over and and beyond. If you take a transatlantic flight, you are crossing over, passing over the Atlantic Ocean. Um, If you grass, which I know is not a word by itself, but... But think of the word progress, egress, regress. The idea is to go, to pass by, or to pass through. So to transgress means to go, to to pass beyond a certain point. And And in the case of transgression, the point is that you have passed a you have gone beyond the specific limits of God's law. Sin and transgression mean the same thing. But the word transgression makes it more clear what sin is. That sin is going across. It is going beyond. It is, it is exceeding the limits that are set by God's law. The teaching of Romans 4 is that the law was added because of transgression. The law of God given through Moses at Mount Sinai. For our purposes, we can say the law of God in the form of the Ten Commandments. We read them earlier in this service. The law of God was given in order to define sin. Sin is transgression. Sin is going beyond the way and the will of God. And this will be very important to us that we understand the law of God so that we will see that it does not save us. The only reason to think that the law of God will save you is if you are interested in never being sure that you are truly saved. Or the other reason to think that the law of God will save you by your obedience to it is that you are so full of pride and so blind to your own sin that you think you are actually doing what the law requires, what the law demands. So let's not soften the law. The law of God is most certainly the requirement of God. It is the, it is the demand of God. In his law, by his law, God very clearly says, if you want my blessing, here's what you must do, and you must do it perfectly. And God has every right to make this demand because because he is God. And he not only demands 
righteousness, but he demands only the righteousness that he first gave to us in the beginning as he created us in his own image. So that what the law really does is to show us our debt and to show us how priceless is the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so finally, the nothingness of the gospel. Bear with me. The nothingness of the gospel. The nothingness of the gospel is what we provide. What we do. Once again, Paul goes back to Abraham thousands of years ago. A a different time, a different culture, but the same God, the same fallen mankind, the same sin, and the same salvation. But to teach us the same gospel, Paul quotes the words of God to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. And all you have to do is remember that when, when God said this, Abraham had no children. I have made you the father of many nations. He had no children. How many times had he been with his wife and yet nothing? And yet God said to him, I have made you the father of many nations. And so Paul goes further back. And, and he goes back even to creation to point out that this is who God is. This is what God does. This is how God works. Whether with Abraham or with us as believers, whether in the first creation or in the new creation, God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God commanded and it was so. God made promises to Abraham, and it was so. So, brothers and sisters, hear it for yourself. Hear it for your salvation. God declares you righteous in Christ as you merely quit your boasting, confess your sins, and claim the righteousness that is yours in Christ. As you merely claim the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. You are still a sinner. I'm sure you know it. I hope you do. We struggle with sin every day. Sometimes we forget to struggle as much as we should. We quit thinking. That's what sin is. We quit thinking. So we neglect our spouse, we, we lie, we cuss, we, we hate, we murder in our minds at least. But that's just the thing, that we quit thinking, we forget, we fail to remember that God has declared, and as much as he, as much as he declared that there would be light in the beginning, and there was, as much as he told Abraham, childless Abraham, that he had made him the father of many nations, so to the same degree he declares that we are righteous in Christ. And it is so because God declared it so. He has credited to us the perfect obedience of Christ. 
And can we just recognize the difference? The difference between trying to be good, and everyone tries to be good, don't they? I mean, even those who just don't want to go to jail, they try to be good. But the difference between trying to be good to save yourself from God's wrath and trying to be good because you have been saved from God's wrath, the difference is the whole point. The point is to acknowledge God for who he is, the God of love and grace, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The law is not the fine print. That's quite blasphemous, isn't it? I mean, to think that God gave promises and then later added a condition to his promises. His promises to Abraham were unconditional. His law through Moses had its purpose. But that purpose was to accentuate, to highlight, to emphasize, to make clear to sinners how good the good news of Jesus Christ really is. Once again, I call upon you merely to believe it. Because that's all God has left us to do. We believe it, we receive it, we acknowledge the gift of righteousness through our Lord, through our provider, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. So full of pride are we, O God, that we would hear the good news and we would want to add something to it. Grant that we would not do so. Grant that we would truly humble ourselves in order to find full rest in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this further instruction from your word that we might know the gospel and we might live joyfully, courageously, thankfully, each and every day as we live for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.